Ephesians chapter 1, you may already be there, but uh, go ahead and turn there. I know that um, we um, traditionally, four or five weeks are taken in, 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 uh, in preparation for Advent. We may do that in some, sometime in the future. We, we've not done a lot of that in our history, um, but um, this year I really felt like it would be good to finish or, or to come close to finishing chapter 1 of Ephesians in preparation for the new year. And so today, um, the, the, my prayer is that I can, and can do that. Um, but next week, we will be um, having a, a very, um, what, what I hope will be a very inspiring and, uh, and, and focusing our heart's message uh, on the meaning of Christmas. And then to just kind of give you the uh, title for that message is going to come from Luke 2, and um, the title of the message for next week is The Long-Awaited Christ, The Joy of All People, and I'm going to preach the exaltation and the overflow of praise which Simeon gave to God when he first laid eyes on Christ. And so I hope you'll be with us and bring friends with you. Bring family with you. You got family in town next week, and I know some of you will. Bring them. It, this, this will be a perfect time to introduce someone to who Christ is. It will be a very Christ, as I hope all of our messages are, but this one will be a special, a cr- very focused message on Christ, who he is, how he has changed the world. And so um, that's what we'll do next week. But this week, we'll finish up chapter 1 in Ephesians. And uh, we're focusing in on the prayer of uh, the pastoral prayer of Paul. Last week we did the first couple verses, and um, and I backed up and took the broader view. Now this week I've kind of I focused in on prayer a little last week and focused in on how we use prayer, how we abuse prayer. If you remember, um, we uh, we we often pray as if it has no impact. We pray as if it's a duty and not. A privilege. Uh, me too. I'm, I'm not preaching at you. I'm preaching with you. Um, and and I and I struggle be, for two reasons. I said last week. I think we struggle with prayer. One is we do not view prayer as actually changing anything. We're fatalist. We're not good biblical uh, people. We are fatalist in our philosophy. The whole world is destined to these things and, and is irregardless of the impact of, of prayer or actions that humans take. And that's just not the case. That's not the world God has designed. That's not the world you and I live in. Secondly, I said, you know, we struggle with prayer, I believe, because we're not on the front lines of the war. Prayer in the New Testament is seen, and even in the Old Testament, is seen to be like a walkie-talkie, if you remember I used that analogy. Others have used that analogy. It's not original with me. That we are communicating from the front lines back to our leader. We're, we're fighting a fight. We're in the middle of the, of, of the thick of the fight for the kingdom of God. And therefore, we're radioing back. We're talking back. That, that prayer, uh, it becomes necessary, not just a luxury that we have. And so we struggle with prayer. You may find yourself struggling, struggling with prayer. So one thing we did last week was kind of focused on prayer. This week we'll take the broad view of this prayer. This prayer which ends, if you think with me, the whole first chapter of Ephesians is a prayer. Isn't that amazing? That Paul would record for us 
two prayers that are connected but are distinct. Two different kinds of prayer. His first prayer contained in the three verses 3 through 14 is a prayer of blessing. Okay? And, and it is it is an overflow from Paul of who God is and what he has done. And now, in verses 15 through 23, he is praying pastoral. A pastoral prayer. A, past, a, a prayer which has three sections. Thanksgiving, intercession, and praise to God. A pastoral prayer. That's the title of the message. Three main points. Thanksgiving, intercession, and praise unto God. Those things should be included in our prayer life. But you, you, you're, I'm sure if you're being honest before the Lord, you're like me. You have to say, my prayer doesn't look a lot like that most of the time. My prayers are not focused on thanksgiving, intercession for others, and praise unto God. My prayer life ends up looking like a to-do list or a wish list. And, I, and I'm not saying we can't ever ask God for things. But when's the last time your prayer was consumed with thanksgiving, with praying for others, and with praising God? The power of Paul's prayers that are contained, as we read last week in many of his letters, is that they follow this simple pattern. They're they're focused around these three elements. Not always, but often. And Ephesians itself, it contains a lot of material of prayer. Uh, 3 through 14 in chapter 1, then 15 through 23, and then 3, chapter 3, verses 14 through 20. All of that is prayer. Prayer is very important. It's not a minor event. It's a, it's a front-line event in the life of the Christian. And so uh, we're going to talk today in broad terms about this prayer, this pastoral prayer. In verses 15 through 23. First of all, we see that we should pray with a heart of thanksgiving. And we see that in verse 15 and 16a. Look at that text with me. For this reason. I said last week, I'm saying again. For this reason. Means that it's connected to verses 3 through 14. We're praying to you God pastorally. With a heart of thanksgiving. Because of the reason that you have blessed us with all spiritual blessings. This prayer of thanksgiving is not contingent on what's going on in your life. Because some of you this morning, as Aaron's already mentioned, are mourning death. Some of you are facing sickness. Some of you are facing marital problems. Some of you are facing economic, personal economic problems and struggles with your businesses. And you say, man, it's just hard to have an attitude of thanksgiving. But it's not really hard to have an attitude of thanksgiving if we're focused on the spiritual blessings which we've already been given in Christ. It shouldn't be hard to have a heart of thanksgiving in our condition as saved children of God. And so he says, my prayer of thanksgiving, my heart of thanksgiving comes out of not my circumstances temporally, but out of my eternal circumstances which that circumstance is a circumstance of blessing. I, listen, it does not matter what you're facing today. I promise you if you were in Christ because of the power of Jesus Christ, His resurrection, ascension, and seated at the right hand of the Father, you will receive eternal blessing. And so Paul says, this is why I'm praying. For this reason I lift my voice. So, 
What kind of heart of thanksgiving, if we get specific in this verse, do we see? Our thanks flows out of our heart because of the faith of the saints. And we said last week, this is not a general faith that our world talks about. Faith as a virtue, that's not what this is. This is a very specific faith. Look what it says. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a very specific faith. Our world talks about faith. Athletic teams talk about faith. Businesses and CEOs talk about faith. Oprah talks about faith. Everybody's talking about faith. But Paul's not talking about that type of faith. He's not talking about faith as a virtue. He's talking about saving faith which is a gift from God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and it is faith that is placed in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul's not thankful in this context, though faith is a good thing. The faith as a virtue is right. It is a virtue. It is a good thing. But it is not the primary reason that we should be thankful for faith. We should be thankful for saving faith. I'm raising my voice in praise to you, God, because you have blessed me with all spiritual blessings in Christ. And now he says, I'm raising my voice in praise and thanksgiving to God because of your faith, church. His heart was overflowing because he had heard of the faith of the Ephesians. And does your heart overflow when you hear of the faith of a fellow Christian or of a fellow church, a sister church? Does your heart overflow with faith? I mean, I was in Walmart. My neighbor from across the street was in Walmart, and we, we, we tend to meet each other there. I don't, I, we see each other in the neighborhood, but we see each other in the wintertime at Walmart. That's like the place we go. And, uh, and so we're standing in the vitamin aisle in the pharmacy in the Jackson Walmart, and people are all around us. And this guy was, did not own a Bible three years ago had never been in a church. He grew up all his life in Georgia, had never darkened the door of a church except at his mother's funeral. And through a relationship which God saw so kind to develop between the two of us, he started coming to my house for Bible study. I bought him a Bible. He came to know the Lord. He was baptized. He attends church up in Jacksonville. And now he's standing in the vitamin aisle and he's telling me, I shared the faith. I told two of my coworkers about Jesus today. Let me tell you about it. People walk around looking at us like, what are they doing? I'm here to buy vitamins. Get out of my way. But we're having a celebration. And my heart is overflowing in Walmart to God, the thanksgiving of the faith I'm now hearing about. And that's what Paul's doing here. As he's separated and in prison and he's getting reports He's been separated from these people in Ephesus for about four years now, five years maybe. He's in prison and he's receiving reports back from Ephesus about how more and more people are believing in Christ. The little church he started and spent and toiled almost three years to see it start, gave his blood, sweat, tears, four, has grown now, multiplied throughout Asia Minor, and his heart is overflowing with thanksgiving. Now, whatever your circumstance is today, it is real. I'm not minimizing it. Don't, please don't misunderstand. Your heart may be broken today. But if you are in Christ, you have reason to be thankful. And if you are hearing of the faith of others and the expansion of the kingdom of God through His church, you have more than enough reason to lift your voice in thanksgiving to God. 
So Paul says that we should be overflowing with thanksgiving because of the faith of the saints. He secondly says our hearts should overflow with thanksgiving because we hear of the love of the brothers for one another. Look what he says. He says that I'm, I'm, I'm thankful to God because of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love which is exerted towards all the saints. Now, as we said last week, he's not anti-loving the world. But the modern church has gotten things backwards, and, and I've been guilty of it, okay? Listen, maybe you can join me in this. Maybe this confession would be good for your soul. We often talk about love from Christians as if it is to be first and primarily exerted towards God and second to lost people. And third, we are to tolerate Christians. But that's not right. Paul says, I'm thankful that you love other Christians. I told you last week, and I want to say it again. Some of you thought it was revolutionary. It's just biblical. If anyone tells you they love Christ, and then they follow that with a but, and then tell you they do not love people in the church, their faith is phony. You cannot love Jesus Christ and not love His people. It's like loving a head without a body. You're saying you don't love the very people that Christ laid down His life to save. So, our love is primarily to be directed towards the brothers, our fellow Christians. And you say, that sounds so introverted. So inward, not outward. We need to be outward. I agree we need to be outward. But did not Jesus say to the disciples that the world would know them by what? By their love for one another. Did not Christ himself say that we are a light like a city set on a hill? Where does that light which shines outward to the world come from? The love which the brotherhood has for one another. It speaks a volume of commentary on the scriptures when the world sees the church loving other people in the church. They take us as inauthentic when we go to them talking about loving them and they look at how we treat one another. And what they probably walk away saying is, I'm going to stay lost because they do tend to love and give to people who are lost, but when you get in, they hate you. And they're jealous of you. And they cease to love you. I don't want to be a part of the church. That's a shame. Paul is overflowing with thanksgiving because of the love which they had for all the brothers in Ephesus and in Asia Minor. And finally, his heart is overflowing with thanksgiving unto God. And ours should overflow with thanksgiving to God from a heart which is continually in the attitude of prayerfulness before God. He says in 16a, I do not cease giving thanks. And... Uh, and so, what does he mean? And we talked about this a little last week as we were ending. The, the idea of not prayer without ceasing is not the idea that you wreck your car on the interstate while your head is bowed. Okay? The idea of prayer without ceasing is not that you pray at specific times during the day, which you may do and I would encourage the idea of prayer without ceasing, which Paul speaks of and others in the Scriptures write about, that comes from the Old Testament. 
in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle and in the temple, before the altar of God, the first job of the priest in the morning was to make sure the fires burning incense, which were the prayers of the people, were continued to, to uh, waft up the fragrance of smoke before God. Their first job was to make sure that that symbol of the prayer of God's people never went out. And now Paul says, pray without ceasing. These two things are connected. God loves the prayer of His people. And the attitude which Paul is speaking about is one of prayerfulness. And last week I described that to you, didn't I? That's not a sit down and bow your head kind of prayer. That's a continual, ongoing attitude of the heart. Submitted to Christ and always taking everything before God in prayer. Everything is laid out before Him. And so here we have the first part, the first stanza, we might say, in this prayer of pastoral pleading with God. Second, we have, we have we, this is the second point, we should pray with a heart of intercession. We should pray for others and their needs. And that's in verses 16b through 18. Look what he says. I'm praying in, verse, in, in the first part of 16 without ceasing for you. Remembering you in my prayers. Okay? So his prayer is not for himself. It is for others. Now I want to meddle a little. Have you ever found yourself halfway or more through your prayer and you have not mentioned another human? You have not prayed for anyone except yourself. I've been there. I've been there a lot of times. And when, we, when I do that, just to let you in so you don't have to admit it, I admit it. When I do that, I make myself big. I make my problems big. And I make God and the church infinitely small. Infinitely small. We, we are, in our prayer life, often buying into the consumer age we live in. God, I need this. God, do this for me. God, help me here. God, make this happen. God, help me over there. And we're halfway through prayer or maybe all the way through prayer, and we haven't prayed to thank God for anything. We haven't prayed on behalf of anyone. It's a consumer prayer. It's all about me. That elevates us and belittles God. That elevates my problems and makes nothing of the church worldwide and its problems. Paul was not that way. He prayed thanksgiving for faith and love and the church. And then he prayed in, on behalf of the church. He had a heart for the church. And so what did his prayer of intercession look like? Let's dissect it a little. Our intercession should include a request to the Father of glory, no less, the Father of Glory is an Old Testament title used in great reverence to Jehovah. Prayer to the Father of Glory through the Lord Jesus. Okay? So our intercession should include a request to the Father through Jesus Christ for wisdom. Look what it says. It says that God 
that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you, the church, a spirit of wisdom. That's something that's given to the church by Christ. But again, we don't live in a fatalistic world. Paul is praying on behalf of the church for this spirit. Now, earlier in the text, I dealt with the spirit of wisdom, and I told you I believe that is a spirit which God gives through the Holy Spirit and through Jesus Christ to the church for salvation, wisdom. But this is, this is my point with saying we don't, we're not fatalist. Look what Paul's doing. He's praying that God will do what he knows God will do. Why would he do that? Because he's, he is a man that believes God is sovereign and he is responsible. He's responsible. He is not assuming on the grace of God, presuming on the grace of God, but rather he is pleading for the grace of God. God, give the church wisdom. Give them the knowledge is his second intercession. Give them the knowledge, he says, of the revelation of him, of Christ. The primary prayer, notice he hasn't mentioned yet a raise of pay at their job. Nor has he asked God to solve their marital conflicts. He has been focused completely on eternal things in his prayer. That's backwards from the way I pray. I elevate this world and I belittle the kingdom. Paul elevated the kingdom and he belittled the world. We speak of the things of eternal life as a byword at the end. You know, we pray our requests and we pray about what we need and we pray about our problems and we pray about this and we pray about that. And then at the end, we feel real guilty. So we say, oh, and God... Your kingdom expand forever. Amen. Now move on. Paul, I take it, okay, looking at his prayers, taking them as a whole, spent his entire prayer praying about eternal things. And then at the end he said, oh, by the way, help this guy and help that guy and help this person and moved on. He belittled the world and he magnified eternity. And so we we should do the same. Our pattern of prayer should be, Similar. So he's asking for wisdom. Not general worldly wisdom, but yet wisdom to know who Christ is and to have the knowledge that's necessary to know who Christ is. So he's asking for the knowledge, the information, the the facts of the gospel, and then he's asking God give them wisdom to apply the facts of the knowledge in their life. Third, in his intercession, he prays, to the Father through Christ for enlightenment. This is interesting to me. Verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Do you realize that in your natural man you are blind? Have you ever wondered why Jesus is in the Gospels often healing blind people? We don't ever hear of him healing uh, rheumatoid arthritis. That's rheumatoid arthritis is an awful thing. But he does we don't hear of him. I don't know he may have healed that. But we don't hear him healing that. We hear him healing blind people, healing lepers who were outcasts in their society, healing the lame, raising the dead. You ever stop to wonder why these categories are what God through Christ focused on? Because they are examples of who we are outside of Christ. We are blind. 
We are lepers. We're outcasts. We are lame. We can't come to Christ on our own power. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. So when Jesus was performing his miracles, he's giving us physical pictures of salvation. This man is blind. I'll give him sight. And then I'll say, by doing that, you're blind. You can't see the truth. You don't know God. You need enlightenment of not just this eye, but of the eyes of your man, your inner man. You need to be made to see. How will we be made to see? John 16 says we'll be made to see through the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. So what Paul's asking God to do is send the Spirit to this church so that their eyes are opened in the Spirit to see Christ for who He is. This is his third intercession. His fourth intercession is that through the, to the Father, through Christ, we would, the church would understand the hope of their, uh, a hope that is grounded in eternal inheritance. Look at verse 18. He says that, this is uh, 18b and c, that you may know what is the hope to which you, he has called you. I spent about three hours. Many of you spent time with Dave this week. Some of you didn't get to see him. He was only here a couple of days and gone uh, to more treatments. But I spent about three hours with him Wednesday morning. And what we spent three hours talking about is where, basically, is where our hope is. If we're not praying that our brothers and sisters in Christ have their hope firmly resting on Christ and the promises of eternity, then we are failing in prayer. I'm failing and you're failing. I'm not beating up on you for that. I'm confessing my own sin and saying, hey, confess it. Today's a new day. Begin to pray this way now. It's not some magic theological formula. You can do it. That's what I'm doing here. Okay, I want to be an encouragement to you to pray this way. Pray with a heart of thanksgiving. Pray with a heart of intercession. What is he talking about? Hope. Look what he says. That you may know. Their eyes are enlightened. They're given wisdom and knowledge. Why? So they can know the hope which they have been called to. What is the hope they've been called to? Christ. Simply, Christ. More complex, all the promises of verses 3 through 14. That's your hope. So if you're, if you're this morning dying from cancer, some of you may be and don't know it yet, so don't blow it off. That will be a very tragic diagnosis when you receive it. But at some point in the process of dealing with the emotion, you have to come to rest on the only hope that you have. His name is Christ. And in him, we have been chosen before the foundation of the world. We have been adopted into the family of God. We have been given the eternal inheritance of a new kingdom, a new earth, and a new heaven. We, of all the people of the earth, are blessed. If, if in your diagnosis, your tragedy, you don't land there, your feet are on sinking sand. What did the hymn writer say? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame 
but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. So what Paul's praying here is God, help them to be like the wise man in Matthew 7 who built his house on a rock, who first cleared away the sand and then built a foundation on the rock. Some of you have sand between you and Christ. It is the sand of trust in your family that they won't fail you. It is the sand of trust in your business that it won't fail you. It is trust in the sand of your health, hoping it won't fail you. It is trust in the promises which you receive through self-help gurus all around the world who try to encourage you about the goodness that lies within you. It is sand which is contained in the hope of medical technology. It is the sand which is contained in all of these earthly things which are fleeting and passing away. And what Paul's saying is, go God. Help these faithful, loving Christians have the wisdom to see who Christ is and apply the knowledge of the gospel to their heart that the Holy Spirit might enlighten them to who Christ is so their hope is fixed on Him. This is a prayer of intercession and of thanksgiving. And finally, this is a prayer of praise to God. He ends with a stanza on a praise to God, verses 19 through 23. Look what he says. Our prayer, like Paul, should be focused on praise, which includes praise for his immeasurable power. I love that phrase. Listen, when you're sitting with a dear friend and you've been there, or a family member, and things aren't going so well in their treatment, And the very real possibility is, there is a very real possibility that they won't survive. Your temptation and my temptation is to measure the power of God by whether he heals that person or not. I thought you were omnipotent, all-powerful, but if you can't even heal this, that's the idolatry which exists in me and in you. Paul's not there. Paul, in prison, being persecuted, hearing of the death of the saints through martyrdom, is with his heart, his whole heart, praising God for his immeasurable power. I imagine Paul taking the lashes from the whip of the Roman scourge and the whole time they're beating him. I imagine that his mind, his mental focus, his inner man is focused on the immeasurable power of God. As the scourge lashed his back, as the rods dug into his flesh, as the stones pelted down, as he lay in the water, shipwrecked the night and the day, as he went through all he went through, I imagine his mind was open to the fact that God at any moment, in any way, could stop this. And the fact that he doesn't stop it does not diminish his power. He is all-powerful. 
And the persecution is minimal. And the cancer is minimal. And the divorce is minimal. All these things in this world are minimal. God is all-powerful. That's the way He prayed. That's not the way I pray. Is it the way you pray? We wonder why our prayer doesn't feel like it goes above the ceiling in our room. Which in this room is pretty high, but at home it's not very high. And I think it's because my prayer looks nothing like His prayer. I magnify myself. I magnify my problems. I magnify the world. I minimize God. I minimize His power. I minimize His kingdom. So the first part of His praise is directed towards the immeasurable power of God. You cannot quantify this power. There is no dimension on this power. It is all power. It is a power in which He can say, let there be, and all the cosmos comes into existence. It is the power which He's going to say in this prayer is shown to us most clearly in the fact that His Son was resurrected from the dead. So the second point of His praise is not just that His power is immeasurable, but that His power is rightly understood through the resurrection. Now, we get caught up on the creation, and that's a powerful thing. Don't misunderstand me. Creation is a powerful event. But Paul says the most powerful event in all the world which ever occurred is the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Let that sink in. I'm whining in my prayer life over the fact that I have a cold, a common cold. And all the while, the immeasurable power of God is available to me through Christ and His Spirit, which raised God from the dead. And I'm whining. That's me, whiner. I try not to whine in front of you, but when I close the door, I whine. I'm whining because someone hurt my feelings. I'm whining because this didn't go right when I went to lunch and I took time and I shared the gospel and this guy mocked or laughed or walked away and I'm whining about it. And all the while, Paul is saying in his prayer life, God, your power is immeasurable because you raised your son from the dead. This, this, this prayer is a prayer unlike the prayer that unfortunately we pray. He says... His power is immeasurable and it is most clearly displayed in the power which He used to raise His Son from the dead. The most powerful event in all of world's history is the defeat of death in the resurrection of Christ. And He goes farther. Look what He says. Some have argued against this being a Pauline prayer because it doesn't talk about the crucifixion. My answer to that would be, if Paul wanted to talk about the immeasurable love of God, he would have talked about the cross. But in this prayer, he's wanting to focus on the power of God, which is displayed not in the cross, but in the resurrection and the ascension. We should never leave out the ascension. Look what he says in the next section. And he not only raised Christ from the dead, but then what did he do? He seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Every scene of heaven that we have in the Bible shows angels falling before the throne in worship. Christ doesn't fall on His face before God because He's God. He goes and sits down next to God. Let that sink in. All the rest of the world 
praises and worships God. Jesus doesn't worship God. He sits as co-equal with God on the throne. This is not an imaginary throne. This is a real throne. As a matter of fact, whenever we see the throne of God spoken of in the Scriptures, it is in heaven. That's where the throne of God is. It is in heaven. Specifically in the Holy of Holies. Specifically above the altar. It is a throne which exists now. And Christ is seated on it. He's seated there. And this is the one we pray to and through. We don't pray through Mary, nor through some saint, nor through an angel. We pray through the power of this man, this God, Christ Jesus. God, your power is immeasurable because you raised your son from the dead and you seated him. He's the only one seated by God. There's no one else that has that seat. Seated in the heavenly places. And then he gives us again a picture of the location. Now we're in the subset below the last part of the intercession, which says his immeasurable power is seen most clearly through Christ. Christ is seated on the throne. Christ is above, far above all powers, rulers, and authorities. The dominion of this world and the dominion of heaven and the dominion of hell is now under Christ. All of it is. This is not a future event. This event has already occurred. It occurred at His resurrection and ascension. He's now seated on the throne and He is ruling forever and ever. And He is seated far, far above. Notice that. Far above. Not a little above, but far above all other power. The next time you're sick and you're fretting over whether Satan is doing it, don't fret over it. Don't try to figure it out. Pray to the one who is far above Satan. His name is Jesus. The next time you're praying and you're fretting over the economy, pray to the one whose treasure knows no end. His name is Jesus. The next time your marriage is failing, you're not praying to some measly, half-witted God. You're praying to Jesus Christ who is married forever to His church. Pray to this Christ. Pray through Him to our Father, the Father of glory. Here we see that He is seated at the right hand of God and He is far above all authority and power and dominion. And He is above every name which is named in this age and the age to come. Philippians chapter 2 says that the name of Christ is the name which all knees will bow to, for He is seated, or He is above, elevated, exalted above all other names and all other, all other kingdoms. Now, we move down now to another subpoint, which is that He is not only this high and exalted King, but He is this eminently reigning head of the church. He is far above all earthly and heavenly and hellish power, and He is connected intimately to His church. God has put Him as power over all things and then given Him as head to the church. He identifies with us. There is no place on the earth which a Christian cannot inhabit, 
and be under the rulership of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. No place. It doesn't exist. And you're under his rulership. Therefore, you as his body have authority through him, not through you, but through him. And the kingdom of God is expanding and it knows no end and it knows no stumbling block and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Paul is praying about this power which resurrected Christ, seated him at the right hand of the Father far above all powers and connected him intimately to his church. This means that his kingdom is not going to begin at some point in the future. It means his kingdom is now. It's what he's teaching us in this prayer. That's, why, that's how he's praying. Which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. A reflection on 1 Corinthians 15 would do us good. That at the end, once God has handed him the kingdom, he then hands the kingdom At the close of the church age, he hands the kingdom back to his father so that God is all in all. This is a great prayer. And it drives me to think of a song. We close. I'm not going to sing. But I want to close. Possibly, possibly, the greatest songs, selection of songs, movement of songs, put together outside of the Bible is Handel's Messiah. When he ended, he ended with a song which I believe illustrates this verse. He ended by saying, the kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord and His Christ and of His Christ. And He, Christ, shall reign forever and ever. Listen, I don't know what faces you personally. Not all of you. I know a lot. I'm intimately involved with so many of you. And as a blessing to me, and I know and I do intercede and pray for your specific problems, but my prayer times are more and more consumed with thanksgiving for your salvation and for the love which you show to one another and to other churches. My prayer is more and more that you would have wisdom to apply the gospel in your life and that your eyes of your inner man would be so strengthened that they would know who Christ is that you would know him intimately. My prayer is more and more focused around the fact that God's power is immeasurable for his Christ is resurrected and is reigning in his kingdom now and forever. Now and forever. The kingdoms of this world wage war against the kingdom of our God And what they are finding is that they have already been put as a footstool under his feet. The next time you're discouraged, I would challenge you to take time to reflect over that fact. 
to think through the fact that no matter what is going on in your life, Christ is ruling and he is reigning forever and ever. And this is a painful journey. That's the reality. It's a painful journey. But it is a journey which will end with the revelation of the Christ. We will see him in all of his glory. And the final enemy, death, which is already defeated, will be fully banished from his kingdom. And we will inherit the new heaven and the new earth. So many of you are, ho- are dealing with the struggles of this life and you are defeated, but you are victorious. You are victorious. So my prayer is that you would know Christ and you would know him as he really is, exalted to the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning now, forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, as we lift up our hearts to you.